You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Alexander Weinstein is the author of Children of the New World. His new collection of short stories is Universal Love. Thank you for joining me, Alex. This is an amazing book. Thanks so much. I'm happy to be here. You know, I've been waiting for years for somebody to do what you do in this book, in story after story, and so well, is to connect. Usually when we read stories about technology, they're kind of, unfortunately, still based on the Lord of the Rings, uh, mm-hmm. which is to say that some kind of smallish person from the outside discovers he has access to an amazing power, and this power is going to lead him on this great journey, and eventually he'll become some kind of messiah or president or some such thing. And those stories are great because they do you know, explore a lot of technology, and you can find really great things, but uh, I mean... Nobody I know is a messiah, nor on their way to become one. <laughs> your most closest you're going to get to that goal is maybe if you're like a decent dad <laughs> or something. <laughs> That's right. And as a decent father, I remember uh, I brought up my kids in the 90s and the aughts. And yeah. that was a, a at the end of that, my wife and I were often uh, inclined to think, this is a generation of children lost to video games. Mm, yep. And, and, and that was just the start. That was just the start. You take us all the way. Um, just the implications of that were lost on many people, obviously not on you. So talk about your inclination to bring the average American family into mm-hmm. the realm of high tech and to, to explore the consequences. Yeah, well, I mean, it's a while I'm writing speculative fiction, this is a kind of realism, right? Because exactly. we are all so deep in this high tech world where we're learning to market ourselves or how to get more clicks or uh, sharing a link or figuring out what game our kids are now on that lasts hours, right? I remember when Fortnite showed up and like the difference suddenly became that you couldn't call your kids to dinner anymore because their games could last an hour long. And they would get kicked off and get penalties if they, you know, that never existed when I was playing Nintendo or something like that. So I think that we have had to, as parents, as lovers, as human beings, uh, navigate this really difficult high-tech world and try to be savvy, pretend like we're savvy about it, when in fact we're learning crazy technologies that are affecting our lives. You know, I think one of the things that that most interests me about your approach is your ability to straddle this very fine line between like almost satiric laugh out loud humor and just gut wrenching terror (laughs) and familial (laughs) depression at yes, yes, it will get that bad. (laughs) <laughs> when you when you uh, choose a subject for a story, say um, uh, the 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 implications of you know where robots could go, and sure, uh, how do you um, access that kind of dichotomy, or you know, in your own brain, or how do you experience that mm-hmm. and translate that into a story? Yeah, so much about, I think, these like robots and holographic parents and speculative worlds that I'm building is that they're based in the human heart. Like again and again, the question is, okay, what am I going through and what am I struggling with and what are my fears and what do I hold dear? And so parenthood, fatherhood's a big one. And I look at raising a teenage son and then I think, okay, if these were robots instead, if this was a robot instead of my son, uh, where would the fear be? And the fear would be, for example, in the story Childhood, what if those robots started getting addicted to drugs? Right? What if they got hooked on that? And what would I do, right? What do you do as a parent? And it, it, 
I think the reason I don't write realism is that it it feels I, I love reading realism, but it feels too corny when I write it. And I can't quite access my own emotions. But if they become robots, I can write about my struggles with parenthood or I can write about my hopes or my fears. Um, and that's the way in. And then I think the humor part is having a bit of Buddhist detachment. If I can just get far enough away <laughs> to be like, OK, this is completely absurd right now as, um, for example, in the story comfort porn, right? Online dating. It's completely absurd that we're using a technology that has taught us to swipe people into the trash. That is a awful and yet humorous and sad piece of modern existence. And so these are the landscapes that I just kind of take what we have and push it a little bit further or tweak it slightly so I can get at the emotions. You know, I would say that this book is in many ways more real than realism is right mm. now. Because one thing you're doing with uh, the speculative fiction aspect is you're externalizing our feelings. We have yeah. many conflicted feelings about our parents. What if one of them maybe were slightly holographic? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And like how much more comfortable might we be with a holographic parent that we know is an AI, but seems like our parent. And what could we ask them about who they really were? Could we be more tender with a hologram than we are with our own, you know, friends and, and lovers and parents and children? Um, I think the answer to that is yes. I think we're proving that we can, but my question then becomes, well, what kind of an intimacy is that since we know that we're interacting uh, really with just representations? And what I mean by that is like when we when we present ourselves online, you look at Facebook, you look at Instagram, you look at the curated photos we use on online dating, that in many ways is a replication of who we hope we are or who we'd like other people to think we are. It, this is reminds me, it's kind of a cross between uh, the old uh, Kurt Vonnegut, uh, no, Mother Night, be careful what you pretend to be for that is what you shall become. <laughs> and uh, Philip K. Dick, uh, the Blade, movie Blade Runner, where they say mm -hmm. more human than human. What yeah. is the difference is it real? Are my feelings right now real? Or am I just making them up and maybe later on I'll discover I didn't actually feel that way? Yeah, right. And Vonnegut is a huge influence on my work. I mean, Vonnegut and I think Tom Robbins early on uh, blew my mind about what you could do because I was raised with uh, reading very traditional work, Somerset Maugham, uh, Chekhov, uh, Raymond Carver, Hemingway, all of the sort of traditional realists. And then I got to Vonnegut and I got to Tom Robbins and I got to all these humorists, Italo Calvino. Uh, and from there, it sort of blossomed into the speculative worlds. And I think what I liked so much, especially if we look at Italo Calvino, is that he will take the human drama and he will make it completely absurd and beautiful and fantastical. And that was a gateway for me to say, oh, okay, I can start to write about these things that are really meaningful to me, but I don't have to do it straight on. I can actually do it slant and and have fun with it while also poking these big critiques I have about what does it mean to be human and what are we becoming when we engage with all this social media and technology. One of the happy for this book's unhappy for the rest of the side <laughs> effects of reading this book is a lot of it deals with remote technology. And so yeah. our hurdle in that is that we are already there. We're already yep. in some of these things, yet much of the fictional world and the television world and the, the movie world, they're still showing people walking who don't prefer remote conversations. They're still right. showing people who don't wear masks and don't observe social distancing really, you know, as consciously as many of us do. So yeah. we are in more in your world than in what we consider the real world. And our emotions are guided by some of the artifices that in your world, they're technological. Right now, they're just kind of emotional and trying to cope with it. Yeah. Yeah, it's, you know, during the, I mean, in this pandemic has really turned 
I mean, it's made a lot of my stories realism, as you're saying. And, (laughs) you know, also in an interesting way, it turns some of the critiques. I mean, obviously, the Internet and technology have wonderful capabilities of connecting people. And And I think about at the start of the pandemic, when we were watching these videos of people in Italy um, getting out on their balconies and singing together and creating concerts together. And this, you know, this sort of beauty of humanity that's shared through the internet. That is the internet's dream. That's the, I think, uh, the, the good side of it. And we've needed it right now to connect and to see each other on Zoom and all of that. The pieces where it gets weird for me is when the marketing interests and the advertising and the self-presentation come in. And, and kind of like you say, when, when the real world starts to not match up, you know, again, I remember during the start of the pandemic, these car commercials where it'd be like, <laughs> go out and drive, you know, and you'd see people like driving through landscapes and in cities. And it was just like, that was sci-fi. That was utopian fiction there at that point. Uh, it, exactly. And, and it, it, the sense of surreality that all of us are experiencing is in essence what your book is about. Mm-hmm. And I think that the one of the things that you do really well is this idea of uh, telepresence and remote presence and body suits. So talk about taking that and just making an almost humorous worst case representation yeah. of of how people are going to quote unquote date because there's a lot of dating in there. <laughs> there is a lot of dating. dating. No, right, and so. So the mildest form of that, which I think is probably frighteningly only five years away, is that is that app Firestarter, right? Which I just based off of like Tinder and Yelp Mm -hmm. mixed together, which would be that you could kind of order sexual positions and look at people and figure out their safety and consent ratings and then like pre-order that so that people would just show up and it would be safe to have sex with them without ever having to talk. And... That's horrifying, and yet that's very close to Tinder and Grinder, right now, and what a kind of idealized <laughs> dream of sexual technological liberation that people have. Um, so that you never even need to communicate with the person you're being intimate with. Uh, and that story was inspired by talking to a uh, an acquaintance who had just come from a Grinder date and had hooked up with somebody. And then the person had texted them to ask if they'd help them move a refrigerator. And the person said, I don't think I want to do that. It's a little too intimate to help somebody with a refrigerator. (laughs) And I thought, oh, my God, this is like this is absurdity. And yet it's a completely normal conversation in our society. And so that so that story called comfort porn is that next level. Right. And of course, then as far as the title goes, the piece of that I was thinking was, okay, if everyone can hook up all the time and have sex when they wanted, what would we miss? And I think what we would miss is human connection and friendship and that people would watch a porn that or pornography that was just people waving at them and saying, I'm so happy to see you. Welcome to the party. I've missed you, which is heartbreaking, right? But it's humorous and heartbreaking. And I think that's the, going back to your earlier question, that's the fun that I'm having always with like, where are we, where's our pain, and also where's our love and the humorous side of that? How can we compassionately begin to look at that? Talk about, you mentioned uh, the Buddhist distance, and I noticed that comes into play a couple of stories here. So talk yeah. about how uh, Buddhism helps you cope with the way things are, and the mm-hmm. way things also the way things are becoming because we're like all loaded up on a train that's headed to someplace it's getting there a lot faster than we expected and yeah. nobody knows if it's going to stop if it's going to be a good place or if it's going to be a train wreck <laughs> yeah yeah it that's for sure i mean so my education, I went to Naropa uh, for my undergrad, which is a Buddhist university. And so, and I was very interested and have been very interested in spirituality my whole life. I um, studied for a long time with uh, shamans in Mexico and, and worked with the tribes down there for about seven years. And this idea of 
that we're more than our personalities, that in fact, our personalities and our egos are illusions to a certain extent. And the more that we invest in them in some ways, the more that we're getting lost in the illusion of it. I think it's central to the way that I build characters and plot lines and stories, which is that there's a core of transcendence underneath all of the stories that's available to the characters, right? And I'm trying to hint at that again and again, that if we can get out of the melodrama of who we think we are and what we think we're supposed to be doing here, which is the opposite of presenting ourselves on Tinder and Instagram and all of that, right? If we can, if we can detach a little bit from that, we might get a glimpse of something much more deep and meaningful that we're here to do. What that question is, what are we here to do? Uh, I don't have the answer to, but I think it has something to do with love. It strikes me that not only are you externalizing some of your interests in, you know, the, the fractures of the human psyche, but the characters are as well. And I think, <laughs> think mm-hmm. that, and, and when they ex- externalize that, it's a, it's an actual thing. It's happening. I mean, when I watch a movie about monsters, say, and uh, I'm kind of frightened by it, or the monster might suggest something, represent some kind of other fear to me, mm-hmm. that happens kind of, I guess, under the hood. Mm-hmm. Uh, this book ta- examines what happens when you take every aspect of human life, inner human life, and yeah. take it, open up the hood. And say, <laughs> Let's take this part, put it over here, and sell it. Yeah, well, yeah, and sell it, right? That's my critique for sure. I'm very, uh, I'm very critical of how we're constantly monetizing uh, and advertising and trying to exploit uh, one another and ourselves, right? This whole idea of like, how many clicks can you get? Like, this is normal language. How can we game the algorithm? Our actual personal goals now. And I think that's a problem for our society, that we have begun to monetize our own human experience, even down to the spiritual level where, you know, you can sign on and uh, follow somebody to figure out how to live your best life. On one level, wonderful. We have access to the world's spiritual teachings, but the moment they become laced with selling to one another, then I think we're right back in a corporate world. Um, Almost like we all became the dot-com sleazy businessmen of the 90s with our own identities, if we're not careful. I mean, that's that's the critique. The hope and the way I balance that in my stories so that I don't create a soapbox or become pedantic is that I think we're really connected by love and by compassion and wanting to be cared for and to care for others. I, I am very optimistic about the human spirit. And so that's what's always in conflict. It's more than the conflict of the characters and the stories. It's the deeper question of can we transcend uh, the pressures on us to sell ourselves. You nod to the the global nature of, of what's happening and the way connections from here to other countries are easily dissolved and also become incredibly important when you're used to being connected i'm connected to you back east somewhere yeah when you're used to being connected and that your connection is always virtual when you all of a sudden experience the actuality of what's happening to you in the physical world that's kind of stunning so so, and i'm looking at a story called Beijing here. So mm-hmm. talk about that because I found that story very poignant and kind of terrifying in a way because I don't want to have emotions that deep or sad. <laughs> yeah, so that comes again from this, I mean, that's a very Buddhist story, right? In that mm-hmm. by the end, there's actually a Buddhist monastery in there and I won't give away the ending, but it uh, Buddhism plays a role in that story for sure. And the the technology is if we could beam this sort of light into our minds to fill in the trauma that we have uh, and to like get rid of depression or things like that, would we do it? Uh, And I think that's asking a Buddhist question. Does suffering and the acceptance of suffering 
make us stronger? I think it does. I think it teaches us. Um, and so I'm on Gabriel's side in there who does not want to beam versus his lover, David, who is kind of using it as a party drug to get rid of all of the bad memories. And yet, and here's the key for me as an author, I'm also like, well, David has a good, like he's having a much better time than Gabriel is. <laughs> like, you know, like he's actually letting things go versus psychoanalyzing oneself for the next 20 years because you're trying to process something, which I think is what Gabriel's doing. Mm -hmm. uh, and that for me is very important as a speculative fiction writer that I don't have the answers here. Like I'm struggling with that moral quandary as well. Is this technology is called patching, right? Is patching good or is it bad? My feeling is it's horrible, but I might be wrong. <laughs> you know, I, I also, I was happy to, to see an invasion <laughs> mm -hmm. because I, I, I'll admit I'm somewhat immature in this matter, but I, I really love a good monster. Mm -hmm. so, yeah, me, me too. I mean, who doesn't, right? Who, who doesn't? Yeah. Uh, well, universalize our uh, admiration of monsters, eh? <laughs> right. Um, yeah. So talk about, um, as you take, I think one of the things I noticed in this is every story gets a little bit uh, a step away from reality, but I think that they're quite well grounded technologically and the things that happen feel very real. So talk about taking, you know, steps away from the the day after tomorrow to two weeks from tomorrow and the thing is, is God knows two weeks from today, we could be in a really, really different situation as we yeah. have found out. Yeah, that's, I mean, that has been mind boggling, right? Of what we're going through, what we're all going through with the pandemic is so unexpected for everybody. And, um, you know, just to step back a little bit there, when you say these things could come true, my friends are always sending me links about my stories coming true. Like I just found out that they're putting this technology together that will shoot light into your brains so that you might be able to edit your emotions. My apologies, I left the phone plugged in and then one of them damn robots called me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not kidding. It's, there you I know, go. That, I mean, this is a this... local number, but that was a damn robot, I know. There you go. That's this is the humor of like why I'm not writing sci-fi, right? <laughs> like robots are calling us. I'm sorry, I get interrupted by a robot. <laughs> Hold on, my text messages are coming in. All of this, right? Now, I think that uh, for me, I, I actually did not feel that this was too much, very much sci-fi at all. Yeah. Most of the technology you. Um, discuss you have it all rolled out but we see you know, bits of it are showing up right now how do you uh, decide what parts of technology to extrapolate on and which parts to just say well that's less interesting to me it tends to be where i struggle with technology where i make a fool of myself because i don't learn it you know i don't understand the technology yet uh, and so I will look at that as like, oh, I bet I'm not alone struggling with this technology. And that's probably funny to use uh, or problematic to use. You know, I think about being on when I was doing online dating and having to learn the technology of swiping people into the trash and thinking, <laughs> my God, this is both narcissistic and, you know, completely problematic, sociopathic about having to, but if you want to use the app properly, you have to learn that. And that's a signal to me, to my writer brain saying, okay, something's off here. Something's wrong that I can play with and take it a little further. And it's that question of like, how far do you go? Uh, because I had a story way back in the day where I, it was called how I met your mother or how I met your father, rather. And it was about this idea that one time in a horrible dystopian future, we would share links with one another to favorite songs and only know each other through text messages. And I mean, that story is just completely passe. That's exactly what we do. So somehow I have to cast the net a little bit further, right? Um, 
And yet, while these are warning stories, again and again, my technology is turning out to be true. They are doing these things that I'm saying, please, let us not go down this path. And then sure enough, like new virtual reality. You know, um, when you describe this story that now to you seems quaint as when you wrote it, you saw it as dystopian. I think that is telling us something really, really important, which is that the people who live in a dystopia don't might not know it. They might not think it's too dystopian. They might just think it's fun and dandy. (laughs) And in the past, I mean, you know, Germans living in Germany in the 30s, those who weren't being shuffled off the war sure thought it was okay enough. Yeah. How do we know? That's this not this collection of stories really gets to the question of, you know, what's more real than real? Are the bodies who's more real? Is it something that you experience um, in person more real than something you experience remotely? I mean, the mm-hmm. experience is if you can duplicate the experience, what is the difference? And that's the question, right? That's a one of the questions that you asked was about this dating technology. And another of the stories deals with these body suits mm-hmm. where you go on these virtual dates and have virtual sex while in the comfort of your own apartment, which I think many people would buy right now if they could get, you know, during this pandemic. I think it would be a very popular item. Um, and, you know, that story deals with the glitches that people are encountering or like how it's almost real but you can't quite sit with your date afterwards and eat, you know? And so you can get these mouth guards and you can chew on like something soft and pretend that you're eating pasta with them. And I think it's that weird space of pretending that it's almost real, that it's almost like a connection. Um, Where is the difference? I do think that uh, the body plays a big role in this. I do believe that uh, in the human soul, let's say that's beneath, all of this and that there's a connection that happens in real space when people gather together and can be an intimate contact that cannot be reproduced technologically. Mm-hmm. And the uh, what we're trying to be sold is that it can and that there's no difference and that the virtual is just as real or even more real, even better than the world. And that has profound negative implications for how we take care of the environment, how we take care of the homeless, how we take care of uh, really important things, even how we connect with our own families uh, within a household. And so that's the place where I like to explore because I, I believe we need that human connection. You know, it, it strikes me that what – these stories really address, I think, one of the, what to me is one of the essential uh, parts of humankind's nature, which is that we are a, a narrative species. If I ask mm-hmm. you who you are, you are going to tell me a story. This is how we actually define ourselves is with stories. So yeah. what happens in every single one of these stories when you can divorce the story from the human but re place it with a, something that looks just like human or is a human or an environment that feels like it's real uh these um address these stories really address the our, our own narrative instincts and, and uh, externalize them in a manner that is uh disturbing <laughs> but, also, <laughs> yeah. but also sweet and generous too so that's an interesting paradox Well, and that is, you know, that is the core of how I write my stories. So the last story in the collection called Islanders, you have a flooded post-disaster world where there's this father and son on an island, which is really just where the elevation was high enough that the flood didn't reach. And they've got these diving tanks and they're going down to get treasure underneath the waves and bring it back so that they can survive. And that that world stands alone and it is what it is. But how I came up with that is that I'm also finding a way to write about my son going away to college and that I hope we can dive down into the relationship to find the treasures that he'll bring with him when he sails off somewhere. And that's so tender to me and so close to the heart that it allows me to get into the characters in a way. I mean, I tell you that, but I don't think anybody reading the story, it's not 
there's nothing really about college in the story. But the ability to know that inside, that somehow I'm writing about that heart, lets me then make the landscape alive and the characters alive uh, in a way that I think feels real. In, in As you create your stories, I think one of the things I like is that they're very compact, they're easily read, and you give us a good twist in, 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 in almost all of them. And I think that uh, uh, the short story seems to be a form that you really excel in. Um, have, have you tried writing something longer yet? Uh, I am now. I am now. Uh, I always avoided uh, the novel. And I thought I love the short story form. I just think it's a fantastic form. And like you say, the concision and the ability to get in and do what you need to do and get out. And, you know, then it's done. It's this perfect little container Uh, works really well for me. And most of the plots that I come up with tend to deal with a single conflict or an idea. And so that works for the short story. And I always in interviews before would say, no, I'm not a novel writer. You know, I'm definitely a short story writer through and through. Well, lo and behold, the pandemic came. I had a lot of time on my hands and <laughs> uh, a lot of emotions to process, as we all do. And suddenly I began on a novel. And yeah, it's it's flowing along. I mean, it's a, it's a big novel. It's about 500 pages right now. Um, and it's wonderful uh, to write a novel. I really enjoy it. It's a completely different form. It allows, it has different rules that I'm learning and it allows so much more. It can contain multitudes in many different conflicts, tons of stuff I wanna write about. The question then for me as a new novelist is where you cut and how you keep that container from getting too enormous. Have any of your stories, one of the things I think about short stories is they do lend themselves to adaptations much better than novels. Because uh, it's easier to just blow out a short story, just slightly keep the same plot line, the same characters, and just give them a little more room to move around and come up with two hours of movie. Whereas yeah. turning 200 pages of novel, or even three or four or 500 pages of novel, into a two-hour movie is is uh, you know a shortcut to a train wreck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. So, have any of your stories been optioned? Yeah, actually, um, there's four of them that are optioned right now. One has made its way through production um, called After Yang, which came from the first collection. Mm-hmm. Uh, my story, Saying Goodbye to Yang, is uh, now a film called After Yang uh, with Colin Farrell and from A24 Studios. Uh, and that's really waiting to be released once the pandemic ends. Mm-hmm. And so that was really exciting. I got to go and watch the filming of that and um was that pre-pandemic? That was pre-pandemic. I oh, got to wow. meet. Yeah. So, uh, and in that story, I'm not ruining anything because in the first page, you find out that the robot's son dies or is malfunctioning and breaks down. Uh, I got to meet that robot son in real life. You know, it was like seeing all these people, you know, like family members. You know, they're like, "Oh, I'm so happy to see you again." So that was great. And uh, Lulu Wang, fantastic director, is. Uh, making the story Children of the New World uh, into a film is in, in uh, scripting of that right now. You know, um, it strikes me that the um, nature of your stories is they remind they're so close to reality that, mm. as, I, as I say, for the most part, they feel like something that's either could be happening elsewhere now or or will be soon. So yeah. I'd like you to talk about your sense of how the future invades the present because it's not like a they don't the future does not drop a future bomb on the present and today it's 2021 and tomorrow it's 2021 with skyscrapers, spaceships and uh cart flying cars. Yeah. We're still waiting for those damn flying cars. Uh, yeah, the flying cars, right? <laughs> We got we got telephones in our watches and things like that, but uh, yeah, we got the Tracy watch, eh? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's coming, right? I think I'm very fascinated by how we telecast our future in our movies, often, particularly in sci-fi movies. And um, there's this idea that we're going to be able to reach out and scroll through the air, for mm-hmm. example, and oh. there'll be different floating screens. 
yeah, it's uh, been around since Shatner's tech war, I think. <laughs> yeah, this is. And so that shows us that that we want that for some reason. Why do we want that? I don't know exactly, right? I mean, you could say, well, user interface and you could have all this jargon, but like, okay, so what? Like why we've yet to learn how to reach out to one another and like, you know, hold somebody's face tenderly really with care um, in a metaphorical way. So why do we want to scroll through things in the air? Uh, That's a question that I don't have the answer to, though I love exploring it in my fiction. But I think that telecasts where we want to go. We want those, you know, flying cars. We want those things. Part of that gets shaped by our inner imaginations and our hopes and dreams. Part of that gets shaped by marketing interests. And that's the, for me, the dividing line where we really want to be careful that our imaginations aren't being co-opted by uh, marketing interests, because that can take us towards one type of future uh, versus another. Uh, that actually happens in some of the stories here. I mean, the the comfort porn story is certainly an excellent example of marketing in the service of itself while pretending to be in the service of other things. And I guess, you know, what interests me is that um, marketing itself is a technology. We're surrounded by a lot of technologies that are yeah. essentially invisible to us. They're, they aren't always like a new gadget or dependent on a new gadget. Technology is more invisible than it is visible. That's right. That's right. And it, and this has to do with our ideologies, right, and the mm-hmm. cultural norms and you know, you, you talk about monsters, and I'm thinking also about like who does. We said who doesn't love a monster, and then I think about the Trump years that we just went through. I'm like, well, actually, <laughs> there's kinds of monsters that we don't love, right? There's kind of monsters that are really dangerous, and the story in the collection Sanctuary, where you have this invasion of um, really actually kind-hearted space alien creatures through virtual reality. These enormous mantids are coming in. And then you have this monster of a president that's waging war against them and wanting to squash them and kill these, you know, needy insects. For me, that has to do with an ideology. And when you talk about the technologies that we create, I think we also look at what are the technologies of the ideologies that we're getting? What are the places that they're leading us to? What kind of futures do we have in the way that we hold our hearts and minds? That's even more perhaps important than the technology itself. Well, also, too, there's, on one hand, we're afraid of what the technologies will do to our children and what they might be inspired by the technologies to do unto us. But yeah. also there's the, the the fact that we are encountering the, the same level of very intense and very personal technology that our kids are experiencing as children. And and this leads to some really interesting dichotomies. I'm thinking of Purple Heart. It's (laughs) in that story, a make America great hat makes an appearance. (laughs) And and you think, wow, this is too real to be real. (laughs) (laughs) Stop writing this. This is not fiction. This is going to belong on CNN.com. Yeah, it's it's frightening, right? And so that story, Purple Heart, which has to do with a war video game where you could actually control drones from the comfort of your living room, right, and put uh, robots into fighting in other countries, that came directly out of me uh, telling my son that he couldn't have a PS4 video game called Just Cause because it involved killing people and, you know, I wasn't going to have him do it. And he ended up getting it through some other, you know, grandparent or somehow he gets it. And I start playing it and I actually fall in love with the game and I enjoy it more than him. And I'm like staying up late to learn how to like strap bombs to things and kill people. I'm quite a, you know, a pacifist in my life. And yet I could see that happening and that the roles were switching between father and son, between adult and child, and I think they are again and again for us, right? You video games alone, you have 40 year olds, 50 year olds playing video games. Now, um, that in the past would never have happened. Like you put away your Nintendo games when you went to college, that would be the sign of yeah, being infantilized. 
yet here we have uh, adults playing video games very much so. As parents, we tell our kids to get off the video games while we're scrolling through Facebook. Uh, you know, like we, we're in this super hypocritical role of all of us being attached to technology. That was a really interesting thing you just said in that I had never thought of the similarity between Facebook and every other stupid video game that always <laughs> bored me <laughs> blankless. I mean, yes, uh, that the technologies we think are so useful and so front facing are actually just by virtue of the laziness of the developers and their own ex, you know, at, uh, exposure to our culture that Facebook is, of course, a lot more like a uh, first-person shooter than it might be like an actual, uh, you know, way to communicate with people. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah, right? I mean, by college kids. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we're just looking at smoothies and nice meals and beach photos and people jumping <laughs> midair instead of, you know, war-torn landscapes or, you know, whatever it happens to be uh, on the video games that our kids are playing. And I think that is the truth. I mean, obviously, it depends how you engage with your friends on Facebook, but in many times we have not communicated with friends for years, for decades. We haven't called them. We haven't seen them. We haven't heard their voices, but we know that they are like, you know, having fun with their kids or that they just, you know, uh, made a good dinner and we like that. And that's, I think, bothers me because I think how disconnected have we become? In some ways that is a fantasy that we have these friends that we think we know not if we're not having real interactions with them. I would say they suddenly become virtual uh, replicas of this idea of friends. You know, um, it struck me too that one the first, one of the earliest machines humans ever made was the lever. You press on one mm -hmm. side and the other side comes up more easily and you can do work that way and you can accomplish huge things. And what we are now just understanding is that these technologies that are completely um, ubiquitous to us, like Facebook or Twitter, they yeah. too are levers. And, and you need look no further than the recent expulsion of, of the leader of the free world for a while mm -hmm. from, yeah. from one of those technologies, which you realize, wow, that one little lever the ability to transmit some little 160-character message to everybody in the world, that is a big lever. And we are being acted on all the time by yeah. big levers, and we do not recognize their power and, and the scope of what they can do to us. Absolutely. You know, I saw that film, The Great Hack, uh, and that blew my mind, that documentary about, which really covers what Cambridge Analytica uh, did by getting all of our data, you know, this idea of data yeah. dignity, and that they can get all our data, and then they can pinpoint us for all kinds of things. They can sell our data to other companies that are interested in exploiting us, including political parties. And that film covers how things like Facebook and Instagram and these different um, tech companies, uh, specifically Facebook in this case, was able to sell our data and overthrow, be used to overthrow countries, overthrow different elections in the United States. That blew my mind that this is what we're giving up when we use these. And that has that's a big conversation about data dignity and how do we get back um, our sovereignty, I think, when we use these technologies. Well, also, these technologies record us better than we can record ourselves in our own minds and better than we're generally willing to bother to record ourselves in the written word, in diaries, yep. or whatever. So yep. that we now have essentially two divergent identities. There's the me that I carry around in my little brain and goes talks to the store and talks to my wife <laughs> and pets the dog. And yep. then there's some version of me that there's one version of me that I think is the one that is people see on Facebook. There's maybe another on Twitter. And yet there's a third identity that is all the stuff that is recorded about me somewhere, like in the Safeway warehouse. They have yes. gigabytes 
they, they, they have terabytes of information on how what I bought. Yes, and that's right. My identity, me, exists in ways and places of which I am entirely unaware. Yep. And this is where the humor for me comes in because, <laughs> because so you have this AI technology that knows us, quote, knows us better than we know ourselves or that even our friends and families knows us, right? And we actually want, and I'm putting quotes around the want, we want that technology because suddenly it's like, wouldn't you like a mint chocolate chip ice cream cone right now? Well, yes, actually, I really would right now. Thank you. Um, you know, do you want a coffee? Have you checked out these coffee roasters? You know, yeah, that sounds great. And we want to be pitched. The whole idea is to curtail our experiences exactly to our desires. And it's doing that well. It's doing that better than many times humans can. Okay, so what's the problem there? Well, now we're back to Buddhism, that just pitching to our desires does not necessarily make us better people at all. And that in some ways, what's happening is a solidification of the false identity of who we think we are in those moments. And it pitches us more and more things and we can become more and more comfortable and have more and more of a life that is catered exactly to who we think we are. But that doesn't let us get away to have a moment of peace, of actually going transcending that. Like, who am I not when my haptic isn't reminding me that right now I want something that it's telling me I want? <laughs> well, well, too, um, as we stare at our own media reflections in the media around us or the media we create, we may believe that we're more that than what we really are. And, and so yeah. pretty soon you you have, uh, in an old Stencil Lem book, uh, the Futurological Congress, you have people mm. who are just like laying in cots, but tripped out on on you know, all sorts of drugs in, in, in his vision uh, yeah. to believe they were something else. This whole um, remote media technological landscape is becoming more us than we are ourselves in our bodies. Yeah, that's a beautifully put way of saying it. And and Lem is another f favorite. I mean, a fantastic <laughs> writer, right? Uh, yeah, that's what I think about this. And, and here's you know, that mix of compassion and horror is that you look on a subway car in, in New York City, well, in the past, pre-pandemic, and everybody was sitting there looking down at their phones with the earbuds in, and some of them are laughing about something they saw, or we're in our beds alone scrolling, LOLing in a silent echo chamber. And that's beautiful and sad and gorgeous that, you know, what we're looking for is a little bit of joy, is a little bit of connection. On the other hand, on the other side of that, is that there's an intense loneliness of replicating ourselves out there. I, I often think of social media as running an advertising campaign for yourself, well, for yeah, your own that's joy. That's exactly what it is. <laughs> yeah. We're all trying to create our own Truman shows. Yeah. And, and we then take the pictures. And this was a realization for me was like I was looking at all these perfectly lit photos of mojitos or, you know, it's like the bar photo or the perfect meals or the people jumping on the beach. And I was thinking, these are really familiar pictures. Where do I see them before? And I thought, oh, yeah, food and wine, travelers, you know, the cooks, cooks, uh, whatever, these magazines. And that somehow we've learned the advertising tricks and we're taking pictures of our own lives to advertise our own joy to ourselves. Because if we have those pictures, it means we got it. <laughs> <laughs> so that that is an incredible observation that we were all advertising our own lives back to ourselves. We're, we're, we pre pretend, try to convince ourselves that the things we do on Facebook are for others and to help them and to get closer to them and right. all these other things. But in fact, all we're doing is building a very nice simulacrum of ourselves in the technology and thinking, oh, I look pretty good today. Okay. <laughs> right. And, and, and the, I mean, the humorous part is that in reality, we're doing 50 jumps midair to get the right one. Like we just spent an hour doing this thing, right? Or whatever it happens to be, we're sitting alone doing filters on something. That's the actual thing we're doing with our lives. Then you get that photo and then that's what you did, right? And it captures this idea. 
And so I'm very much for getting back to the what are we actually doing here in our lives in this moment? And how is that time very, I think it's deeply valuable. I mean, obviously, we can use that time to change the world and create meaningful connections and really have a lot of power. That for me is is crucial that we begin to take that back in some ways. And I think that's underneath these stories, that there's a glitch in the system, that something breaks down and the human connection begins to bubble through that crack. And, and the reason it does is because even though we're in the 21st century, surrounded by all sorts of immersive technology that can really capture our imaginations and guide us and do all sorts of things, the reading experience is still unique and still mm -hmm. applicable and still very intense. Sitting down and reading a book or a story is in many ways more intense, I think, than seeing a movie. My favorite memories of stories are almost equivalent to the way I think of them. The best books are like vacations I never had. I have mm, I those kind that. of memories are almost on the same level. So talk about working in that kind of weird word space that is almost incomprehensible to, to a vi the video game generation. Yeah, I, I see that. I love that idea of vacations that you're taking. So another series of stories that I've worked on, have been working on is uh, these travel guides to a recently discovered continent that just existed. We just never saw it. And it's fully fledged with uh, hotels that can eat you and cities of loneliness and museums of uh, childhood and beautiful, these beautiful locations. And that has been such solace to write into those stories during the pandemic because it's like traveling. It takes a travel guide story. When you arrive to the city of loneliness, you know, no one will wave to you, but everybody's having a great time. And <laughs> very uh, Italo Calvino. <laughs> Yay. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Calvino is definitely influential there, and Borges and all of like the magical realists are playing in there. And for me as a writer, that's been taking that vacation. And I think also in the novel, I find that I'm deeply in this other world when I'm writing it. That's the joy of, I think, being a writer is that you can enter into these worlds and build them and inhabit them and feel them and feel the landscapes and the characters. And of course, the smells and sights and sounds. As a reader, uh, if that's done well, then hopefully the reader gets that joy too, that they get to be transported. You take them on this vacation. And the question for me has always been, what kind of vacation are you taking somebody on, right? Hopefully they return better after this. You don't necessarily want to drag them through an awful vacation. That said, you know, that makes me think, okay, but sometimes you do need to take them into darkness to show, hey, let's pay attention to this over here. Hey, there's injustice here. You know, that's a very important piece that literature can do too. The new collection of stories by Alexander Weinstein is universal love. Thank you for joining me, Alex. Oh, this was such a pleasure. Great speaking with you. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.